Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 88 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. Today I'm joined by Lisa Hendrickson-Jack, who is here to talk all about fertility and SIBO. Lisa is the host of her own podcast, Fertility Friday, and if you're a woman or a man who wants to know more about women's fertility, but if you're a woman and you'd like to learn more about fertility, I really encourage you to head over and listen to Lisa's podcast, Fertility Friday. It's such a wealth of information and knowledge, and I wish we were taught all of this at school. I have learned so much about my own uh, cycle, my own fertility, my own reproductive system through Lisa and her podcast. Lisa has written an awesome book, The Fifth Vital Sign, and today we're talking about the, um, some of the really key information that's in that book. Now, if you would like to get the transcription from today's episode, don't forget that all members of the Healthy Gut Podcast get free transcriptions from Season 3. So just head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast to sign up today. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Lisa Hendrickson-Jack. It's great to have you back on the show. Thank you for having me back. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have you here because you've done something that is absolutely monumental since we last had you on The Healthy Gut in episode 48, and that is that you have written a book, which is great. I've been reading it. It's called The Fifth Vital Sign, and I really encourage you guys to go out and take a read of it. I've got a link for it in the show notes from today's episode, but it is such a wonderful resource on all things the female cycle. And I was saying to Lisa before we started recording that I've been reading through it. And I did Lisa's um, online coaching program, which was the most informative thing I've ever done. And I learned so much about my cycle. But reading back over, reading over the book, you know, I was like, oh, that's right. I've remembered. Oh, that's right. You forget what you have learned. And it has just been such a wonderful reminder of all things uh, female cycle and how important it is about being such a vital sign for health. Before we kind of dive into today's interview, let's talk about why we should be considering the female cycle as a vital sign and what that actually means. 
Well, you know, there's there's a few different reasons. One way to wrap your head around it is to, to think about the hormone cycle and to recognize that as women, we're producing our ovarian hormones, our main ovarian hormones, as a result of our menstrual cycle. So in the first half of our cycle, we're producing estrogen as we approach ovulation. In our second half of the cycle after ovulation, we're producing progesterone. And unless we're really ovulating normally and having a healthy menstrual cycle, we're not producing these hormones. And it's not that we only have receptors for estrogen and progesterone, you know, within our reproductive organs. We have them throughout our entire body. And these hormones affect um, all kinds of different processes in the body from our moods and our emotions to our bones and our breast tissue and our brains. And uh, essentially, for a biological woman of reproductive age, having a healthy menstrual cycle is a sign of health. And it's not only related to our ability to reproduce. Uh, So, you know, that's one of the main messages of the book, because it kind of goes against what we're taught in our culture. So as women, we're not really taught a lot about our bodies. We're not really taught a lot about our cycles. And when we are taught about our bodies, it's, it's all, it gives us the idea that it only really matters if we're trying to have a baby. And I often talk about the birth control when I'm conveying the idea that the menstrual cycle, uh, the birth control pill or other types of hormonal birth control when I'm conveying the idea of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, because hormonal birth control gives us a really great example of what happens when we shut it down, when we shut down our natural uh, reproductive system. And so, um, for instance, you know, the birth control pills associate with a whole host of uh, side effects. And the main way that it functions is by shutting down ovulation. And uh, when you shut down ovulation, you're suppressing our natural production of estrogen and progesterone and reducing, significantly reducing testosterone production. And so what happens is a long list of side effects from depression and anxiety to low libido. Um, and, it, you know, there's research that shows that it even affects our ability to choose a, a partner. Uh, so it's only when you can recognize that our menstrual cycle is actually a central part of health and it's a sign of health, not just fertility, that we can recognize, oh, wow, our cycles are actually really important and we should be thinking of them as a vital sign. Um, but more specifically, in terms of, you know, calling it a vital sign, a vital sign, the ones that we're most familiar with, like our heart rate, body temperature, respiratory rate, and blood pressure. Uh, so, you know, like how many breaths we take each minute. But all of these vital signs, if you go to the doctor and they measure your vitals, we all know that the doctor, when he's measuring, or she, uh, when your doctor's measuring your vitals, there's a standard uh normal parameter, for example. So with your body temperature, we know what a normal temperature would be, where it would fall. And we also know that if the temperature is too high or the temperature is too low, it's going to give us some specific information. Not only is it going to tell us that there's something wrong and it's giving us a real-time measure, but it's also going to give the doctor a roadmap of where to look. So if your blood pressure is too high, there's specific conditions that the doctor is going to need to rule out uh, or too low, etc. And what's interesting about the menstrual cycle is it acts in very much the same way. There's a normal set of parameters in the menstrual cycle. And when there's something, if we have an underlying health issue, if there's something happening in our bodies from, you know, a stress from day to day or um, a legitimate endocrine disorder or anything in between, what happens is it affects a menstrual cycle in real time. 
And so when you're working with someone who's trained in reading the menstrual cycle, we can read the menstrual cycle in very much the same way as any of the other vital signs. And it gives us a roadmap of where to look for what could be the underlying health issue that's at play. I've been tracking my cycles now for over a year and I'm just trying to recall exactly when it was that I did your online program, which was so eye-opening. But it's really interesting as I look back over my charts and see the minor fluctuations month to month, but also see the impact that things like long-haul travel has. And I'm recording this episode from the United States at the moment. I was just saying to Lisa that I got kicked in the backside by bad jet lag last night, so I've only had a few hours sleep. So I guarantee you my cycle is, that's going to show up in what I start seeing as I'm tracking my cycle. Um, We did cover a lot of information around the cycle in episode 48. So I do encourage you to go back, but let's have a really quick recap on some of the things that you look at when you are charting. And I know that you commonly hear, and I myself have said this to you, why weren't we taught this as young women? I had no idea the amazing information that my body gave me every single month at all until I did your program. And I was quite angry and frustrated that no one had ever taught me such valuable information. And then instead of being scared of my period, scared of falling pregnancy because I believed I could fall pregnant on any day of every month, that actually there's a very, you know, once you start charting, you can see really clearly when your fertile window is and it's an empowering skill set to have as a woman. Sadly, I only came to it in my very late 30s and I wish I'd known it from my teens. And if I ever have children I will be and girls, I will be teaching this stuff. So firstly, why aren't we taught this stuff, Lisa? <laughs> it should be taught. <laughs> yeah, that's a big question. I mean, I've been in this field for almost 20 years and I was part that's part of the reason why I've chosen to share this information in such a public way as much as I can at every chance I get, because I was one of the rare people, women that I know who was, you know, I discovered fertility awareness when I was about 18-ish, 18 or so. I was fresh out of high school and I was in my first year of university. And, you know, I went to, I was in, I I like to say I was in my post-high school feminist phase. So I was going to all these really cool talks and I ended up discovering fertility awareness from an author. She came to our school. Her name is Inga Musio. She wrote the book, Cunt, A Declaration of Independence. Great title, right? Um, But in her when she was reading she somehow in there mentioned that you could tell when you're fertile in your cycle based on your cervical mucus and your cervical position and uh really just that was the first time i'd ever heard that you weren't fertile every single day of your cycle and um so your question about why that's a hard question to answer i mean on the one hand because it's a really big question but on the other hand what i've come to know over the years or at least what i've come to to observe witness and and feel and experience is that you know it is related to the way that the medical system um, has omitted women in many ways so for example a lot of scientific experiments are primarily done on men or male animals because adding women to the mix or testing women is considered to kind of add a level of complexity that they don't want to, you know, that they want to avoid. Uh, So there's a long history in medicine to focus on the male body and focus on what's relevant to men, to study men 
and uh, to kind of base everything on the male body. I mean, in an unrelated example, uh, women respond to heart attacks in a very different way than men. And it's only recently been discussed and talked about. So there's generations of doctors that weren't trained to identify the signs of heart attacks in female in females because <laughs> men is men are the standard. So there's a great deal of that. Um, I remember I asked one of my guests on my podcast, uh, the founder of the Justice Method, Geraldine Mathis, I interviewed her and I, I asked her the same question as you did. And I, I believe her answer was like misogyny, like period, end quote. <laughs> and I remember thinking, oh, that's so harsh. It can't be that. Um, but there's something, there's something bigger, um, really. And if you've ever spoken to or had these, like, if you've ever spoken to different women about their experiences with medical practitioners, or if you've ever had the experience yourself of being dismissed, if you have symptoms, you go to your practitioner, you know, so many women have the experience where they're told that it's not, um, either it's in their head, it's not, it's not really happening, or that it's, it's dismissed, or it's minimized. So that's a long answer to your question. But I feel like it's something deeper. And as women, um, the and we, we can't just sit around and wait for the medical system to catch up. We can't sit around and wait for our teachers to start teaching us this in junior high school. It's really up to us to get the information out there. Um, yeah, I wish I had a, like a happier story, but I feel like there's it's really deep and much bigger than both of us. It is. And as I often do, when I learn something that I think is really important information, I kind of sing it from the rooftops. And I'm at an age where I've got a lot of girlfriends who are um, – you know, we're, we're all older, we're not 20 anymore, but who are now at a point going, okay, if I'm not going to have a kid, like I need to really make that decision if I'm going to have kids or not. And there's a lot of friends um, and myself included, we're at, that, we're at that point where we're like, okay, we should really be considering whether pregnancy is going to be part of our very near future. When I talk to them about are you charting your cycles? Do you know how to determine whether your body is is in a fertile window? They look at me blankly and say, I don't know what you mean by that. Like, what? how do I know when I'm fertile? And so I send them to your podcast. So if you haven't listened to Lisa's podcast, head to the Fertility Friday podcast. It's where I first came across Lisa binge listened to so many episodes and was just so amazed by the information there. So it's a great place to start as well as her book, uh, The Fifth Vital Sign. Um, but let's quickly recap on how you can tell what what you look for when you start charting and then we'll move into this pregnancy discussion because it's really important for my SIBO ladies and the men who are listening to understand what impact SIBO can have on preparing the body for pregnancy and what we need to look for to even know if we're ready to fall pregnant. So what do we first start charting when we start watching and monitoring our cycles? So I would say cervical mucus would be the place to start. And uh, so as women, we produce cervical mucus as we approach ovulation. As our as we get closer to ovulation, we make more estrogen, and that is what triggers our cervix to make mucus. And many women have observed it, but maybe didn't know what it is because we weren't really taught about that. Uh, so cervical mucus, it can look like creamy white hand lotion, 
and uh, it can look like clear, stretchy, kind of like raw egg white type fluid. And then uh, some women will notice that as they approach ovulation, when you're going to the bathroom and you're wiping yourself, you might find that it's really, really slippery on some days. And also that it's like you have to wipe a couple of times, you feel like there's more there. And so you might have to actually wipe yourself a couple of times to, to really get feel dry. Uh, so those are the main ways that you would observe and see cervical mucus in your menstrual cycle. And the reason why cervical mucus would be one of the main signs and in the method that I teach, it's, you know, the central sign uh, that we will always want to be paying attention to is because cervical mucus can keep sperm alive in your body for up to five days. I think a lot of us have heard that sperm can live in our bodies, you know, but we're not really, again, we're not really provided information as to why or how it works or how it happens. And so outside of your fertile window, so when you're not approaching ovulation, that would be perhaps for some women shortly after their period. And then of course, after ovulation, our vaginas are actually quite acidic and sperm can't survive for very long at all. So within, you know, minutes, sperm, they can't survive beyond that outside of our fertile window. And so our vagina is quite a hostile environment to sperm. It's acidic and outside of the fertile window, our cervix, so the entrance to our uterus and our fallopian tubes is closed. And it's only when we're in the midst of our fertile window and we're producing cervical mucus and we're seeing whether it's the, you know, lotion or the egg white, clear egg white type fluid, it's only during that phase of the cycle that sperm can actually survive, that the sperm can make their way into the cervix and the uterus and the fallopian tubes. And it's the only time of the cycle, I mean, um, we are producing this as we approach ovulation. So then at some point we are ovulating, the egg is being released. So this only happens during a certain window of the cycle. And so for any woman who's listening, who really just wants to get a, a, a general sense and get her feet wet in terms of fertility awareness, well, you're going to the bathroom every day anyways, <laughs> and you're wiping. I don't have to tell you to wipe yourself when you go to the bathroom. So uh, one of the first things that you can do is just be a little bit mindful. So when you go to the bathroom, just pay attention to how it feels when you're wiping yourself. You know, does it feel um, does it feel a little bit lubricative? Does it feel different on some days than others? And then, you know, look at the toilet paper and see, is there, do you ever notice anything that looks like uh, lotion? Do you ever notice anything that looks like clear raw egg whites? Or do you ever feel that kind of lubricative slippery sensation? Um, do that for a couple of cycles and all of a sudden you'll be much more aware of how to identify ovulation. That was one of the biggest and exciting moments for me when I started to see cervical mucus and know what it was that I was seeing. And after the majority of my fertile life being on some form of hormone contraception, either through the pill or uh, the Depo-Provera injection or the Marina coil, I hadn't had a natural cycle very often. So it had been years, decades that since I had last seen cervical mucus and I'd kind of forgotten about it because I wasn't seeing it when I was on the hormone contraception. And I remember sharing in the group, you know, I was looking, looking, waiting every day. And because I was so programmed to believe that every day is a fertile day from doctors and from parents saying, you don't fall pregnant now, you know, we come from fertile stock, us cooms. Um, you know, you just need to look at a man and you're pregnant kind of messaging that um, when you are reconnected with your body and that you're 
the cervical mucus is only appearing on those fertile days or as you're leading into your fertile window, you know, it was hard for me to not to realize that I wasn't going to see it every day, but yet my expectation was I'll wipe and it will be there. And it wasn't. And, and so when it started to appear, I was like, woohoo, I can see it. I found my cervical mucus. And so it was quite an exciting moment. But, you know, to any ladies that are going to start looking for it, don't feel alarmed if you don't see it initially, because it isn't there every day. You've got more days without it than you do with it in your cycle. Um, one thing that I know you said to us in our coaching program was like when to wipe. And this is something that, you know, you I had to really be conscious of. And that was around wiping before I urinated um, so that I was getting like a clean bit of toilet paper rather than a, a urine soaked toilet paper um, because that really helped to see the cervical mucus. And, and sometimes I'd forget and I'd be like, oh, damn. Oh, I, I was so busting. I went before I could check. Why should we be doing it with clean toilet paper versus, you know, used toilet paper? Um, well, I mean, for logistical purposes, I suppose you could say, uh, or practical purposes, it's easier to see the mucus. Um, and so uh, to get into kind of the nitty gritty of it, I think when someone's starting out, you don't have to worry too much about doing it, you know, perfectly. Uh, but what I recommend for my clients, as you know, Rebecca, is to uh, wipe both before and after you go to the bathroom. Um, so these are for my ladies who are really getting into charting and wanting to, to, to be really clear about their mucus observations. So you would take a piece of toilet paper, a clean, fresh one, you know, fold it flat. So it's kind of like, you know, just like a flat piece of paper. So you just fold it a couple times and then you would wipe from front to back. So not every woman wipes from front to back, but you basically have to kind of reach around and wipe front to back so that when you're wiping, you're actually wiping over the perineum. And so the perineum is the, it's a little thin piece of skin, patch of skin between your vaginal opening and your anus. And the reason that we want to wipe over that is because it's a sensitive piece of skin, sensitive little patch of skin. And uh, you want to kind of feel and pay attention to the sensation that you feel. So uh, as you approach your fertile window, uh, you'll typically feel... um, that it might feel slippery or smooth. So when you're wiping, you'll feel that the toilet paper kind of glides across. <laughs> I always joke, it's like when you're in the in the midst of your fertile window and you're producing cervical mucus that looks like the clear, stretchy egg whites, um, raw egg whites, I should say, you'll, it's like the your hand is hitting the back of the toilet paper. It's just like, phew. Uh, so part of the reason that you want to wipe with uh, like a flat, clean piece of toilet paper is so that when you actually look at the toilet paper after you've wiped, it's easier to see if there's something there. So just from a practical standpoint, um, you it's also a good idea to wipe afterwards because after you've gone, after you go, uh, when you go you know, to the bathroom when you pee, you're kind of pushing. And so if there was any mucus hanging out, then you might have pushed it out. So um, for, for the listeners who don't talk about cervical mucus every day, you'll notice that I, I'm quite comfortable talking about it. Our joke in our class was TMI Tuesdays. I think our, our class was either on Tuesdays or Wednesdays. And so, um, you know, I'm really comfortable talking about mucus, uh, checking for mucus. I, I recognize not every woman is there. Uh, so, you know, it, for women who for whom this is resonating with and you're wanting a place to start, I mean, you're already going to the bathroom every day, multiple times, you're already wiping. So you could literally just wipe as you normally were and just notice if at some points in the cycle, if it feels a little bit slippery and then go from there. 
I think it, part of the issue is the name. Cervical mucus sounds a bit gross. <laughs> and when I was first learning about it, I was like, ugh, mucus, that's disgusting. But now I see it as such an informative um, measure. And also something to, to note that, and I think this is what I was looking for, I was expecting like gallons of stuff. And I was thinking, well, why is there not just handfuls of this stuff coming out? Isn't that what I'm supposed to see? And I had to realign my expectations that it's not necessarily heaps and heaps. It might just be a really small amount, but when you know what you're looking for, you can see it. So it's it's not like, you know, it's not the same as like the heavy day on your period where, you know, you expect to see a lot of stuff coming out. It's it's a It's more subtle than that. Well, and I'll point out a couple of, just a couple of things to consider for the ladies, you know, who are tuning in. There's a couple different factors that can contribute to the amount of cervical mucus that you see on any particular day and also how many days you might see. And so the first is age. And so what's really interesting is that young ladies, when we are in our late teens and early 20s, um, the cervix is fascinating, really. And uh, within the cervix, there are different little folds of, you know, and they're called the cervical crypts. And the cervix, for anyone who's not that familiar, is the base of our uterus. It's where the baby comes out when we're in labor. And so within our cervix, we have all these different little crypts. And they have these specialized cells that are making our cervical mucus. But there's different types of mucus. There's different types of crypts, uh, different types of these specialized cells. And so when we're seeing the clear, stretchy kind of raw egg white, um, there are cer- certain crypts are producing that mucus. So we've, you know, not, not to go into tons of detail, but we've got the S crypts and the L crypts and the G crypts and the P crypts. Uh, but suffice it to say that there's certain crypts that are making the, the peak quality clear stretchy. And so when we're in our late teens and early 20s, we have a lot more of the cervical crypts that are producing the mucus that is clear and stretchy. So, for example, I mean, if if you just imagine a woman who discovered charting when she was 16, she's very lucky and we're all a little bit envious of her, and she's she continues to chart her cycles throughout her entire reproductive life. So she basically charts her cycles for like 40 years, basically, until menopause. And so in this fi- fictional example, she has the ability to kind of see how things have changed over the years. What she would find is that in her 20s, in her late teens, early 20s, she's more likely to have an average of say seven days of mucus. So she's more likely to see when she's checking for mucus at that young age, uh, for her to have you know several days leading up to ovulation where she's seeing it multiple times a day. And what happens is as we age through the natural aging process, gradually we have fewer of those crypts that are making that clear, stretchy, raw egg white type fluid. Uh, What I've noticed in my practice and also what we see in the research is that as we age, we just tend to have, it just gradually wanes. So by the time we are in our mid thirties, early forties, we're more likely to have say an average of four or five days. By the time we hit our, you know, early forties, we're more likely to have an average of say two to three days. Uh, so for the women who are listening who are in their late 30s, early 40s, you wouldn't expect to have seven days of peak mucus, all you know, seeing it every single day and having copious amounts. Many women by that time are really, I've, I've worked with a number of clients who don't necessarily have anything that they can stretch between their fingers. They're really noticing that on certain days of the cycle, it actually just feels really lubricative and slippery. 
So you're right, Rebecca, to to just kind of clarify that it's not always this like gaping <laughs> gobs of, of cervical mucus. Sometimes it's just this subtle um, sensation change. And the other thing I'll mention is that hormonal birth control also reduces the amount of mucus that you produce. So for women who've been on birth control over the long term, so, you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, when you come off of it, it's much more, um, and also if you've been on it for 20 years, you're also 20 years older. So those two things are compounded. But for women who've been on the pill for a long time, when they first come off, it's not uncommon for them to have less mucus. uh, And that's just because of the effect of um, the pill on your cervical crypts. As a 41-year-old woman, I have I can definitely see that my the amount of cervical mucus that I now see is vastly decreased from what I remember on the occasions when I wasn't on the pill in my early 20s. So there's definitely been a big difference. But And I wasn't sharting back in my 20s. I didn't even know about this stuff, but I just recall seeing stuff and going, oh, what's that? Um, so we've talked about cervical mucus. Um, there's a couple of other signs that you can look for to uh really look at where you are in your fertile window over the course of your cycle. What are those other things that you look at? Mm -hmm. The two other main signs are basal body temperature. And so that's when you're measuring your temperature, you know, first thing in the morning every day before you get out of bed. And then cervical position would be the third. Uh, So basal body temperature is very helpful. It's interesting because, again, similar to mucus, it's responding to the hormonal changes that we experience in our menstrual cycle. And after ovulation, we produce a significant amount of progesterone. And, you know, in fact, we're not really producing any progesterone to speak of in significant quantities unless we do ovulate. And progesterone has a thermogenic effect on the body, meaning that after ovulation, when our progesterone levels rise, it actually causes our core resting body temperature to increase and increase in a measurable way that we can plot on a graph. So for the inner nerd in in you, (laughs) if you resonate with that or um, you're able to actually chart this and plot it on a graph and see that after ovulation, your resting body temperature actually increases. So it helps you to confirm that you've ovulated and it's very helpful for women who are charting their cycles. So for women who are trying to get pregnant, it helps them to confirm when they ovulated in their cycle. It helps them to, you know, pinpoint the best time that they should be having sex in order to conceive. Um, And then for women who are avoiding pregnancy, same idea. It helps them to know when ovulation happens so they can get a sense of when their fertile window has ended. And then cervical position is a very interesting sign as well. Uh, Similar to the other two signs, it's, it's really responding to the hormonal changes. As we approach ovulation, our cervix actually rises. If you were to put your finger inside of your vagina, you know, once or so check your cervix. So insert your finger into your vagina and kind of feel until you feel your cervix, which is would be at the end of your vagina. Uh, You know, towards the beginning of your cycle, your cervix would be in a lower position. As you approach ovulation, the cervix actually rises and is higher inside the vagina and is softer. So estrogen softens the cervix and changes position and opens the cervix as well. So many women will find that 
in the midst of their fertile window, they can feel kind of like a dimple on the cervix because it's physically open to allow the sperm to swim through, which is really interesting. And then after ovulation, again, your progesterone surges and that causes the, the position to change. It causes the cervix to close up and to feel more firm. And so it's really, really interesting, I think, for women who discover fertility awareness because you know, if you get into charting and you start to chart, this is something that you'll experience each cycle. So cycle after cycle after cycle, you'll experience the mucus as you approach ovulation. You know, your cervix is softening and going higher inside the vagina, feeling open. After ovulation, the cervix moves down inside the vagina and it closes and it feels firm and your cervical mucus dries up. And then um, your period comes about 12 to 14 days later. From a practical standpoint, you know, you can always predict your period when you're charting your cycles because the, the number of days between ovulation and your next period is usually about the same. Uh, and this pattern repeats. It's not always on the same day. Ovulation can be delayed. Rebecca, you mentioned the travel situation. So you can certainly, you know, there's, it, it's not to say that it's always going to be on the same day, but you get a sense of like, oh, I usually have mucus for a couple of days before ovulation. Oh, I usually, you know, have my period about, a, you know, X number of days after ovulation. So it's really, um, it's really empowering and it, it really demystifies this whole concept of the female cycle, as you mentioned, uh, and empowers us as women to be able to make choices about even even literally just the choice of knowing when your period is coming and putting a tampon or a menstrual cup or something in your bag so you're not surprised. It has given me so much more freedom um, because I'm not afraid of my period and my cycle like I once was because it's it's no longer such a big mystery like it was what I was blown away by was this basal body temperature and cervical position I had no idea that my temperature changed throughout my cycle and now because I've been charting for so many cycles you know I can I just know what my pre-ovulation basal body temperature sits at and my post-ovulation temperature sits at. It's like clockwork. It's so fascinating. And, you know, I know that, you know, it's, I know there's sometimes a misconception that every woman ovulates on day 14 and that's not the, the case. I know that my ovulation sits anywhere from day 10 to about day 16 if I look at all my cycles um, and I also know that I'm 13 to 14 days after ovulation my period starts that's pretty much bang on every single cycle so it's been fascinating but I had no idea that the cervix moves and when I first started working with you and you know you were encouraging us to explore our cervix and feel where it was during the cycle I was like I don't even know what I'm feeling <laughs> like I've never gone looking for my cervix before what is it that I feel and you talked about the I remember you talking about the tip of the end of the nose um can you remind me what when you were telling us in the coaching yes. program what that, what that why, are you, why are you feeling something that feels like the tip of the end of your nose yes well um so a different so basically the analogy is that typically how your cervix feels when it's when you're outside of your fertile window and it feels a bit more firm so your cervix is firm it's closed and it's typically lower in the vagina meaning that when you put your finger inside of your vagina it you don't have to put it in very far your cervix is kind of right there and uh, so in that kind of low firm position it typically feels similar to the firmness of the end of your nose 
And I mean, it's really like you're going into no man's land or something like that. I mean, most women haven't seen their cervix. Um, if you have a really forward thinking OB or uh, GP, if you go in for your pap or something like that, you know, I, I know it's very rare. I think one of my clients mentioned that her, uh, her, maybe it was a nurse or something who did her pap that, you know, offered to put a mirror so she could actually see her own cervix. So one of my clients mentioned like, oh no, my, my nurse did that and I was able to see my cervix. And I thought, wow, you know, that's not an experience that most women have. Um, but I mean, that's how it would feel. And then in in your fertile window, when I mentioned that you would feel the dimple because the cervix is softer, it feels kind of like if you were to purse your lips and put, you know, touch your lips, I'm doing it as if you can see me doing it <laughs> while I'm saying it, I can't help myself. Um, but if you were to do that and feel your lips, uh, you feel kind of like a little dimple, you know, in where your lips part. And that's similar to how the cervix feels when you're in your fertile window. So it's just to give you a sense of what you're feeling for. Um, and the thing about the cervix is that uh, from day to day, it doesn't really shift that much. Uh, the biggest shift happens from when you're in the, your fertile window to after ovulation, when the cervix kind of dramatically shifts from being high and open and soft to this more low, firm, closed, and even a bit tilted position. And so, you know, for the, the advice that I give to my clients in the group, you'll remember, Rebecca, is that if you're wanting to understand your cervix, you kind of have to commit to it for one full cycle. You just have to check it every day and be prepared for the fact that it's, you're not really going to know what you're feeling. You're, it's not really going to feel that different every day. And there's going to be days where you feel like, well, pff, why am I checking this? <laughs> Nothing has changed. Uh, you're literally waiting for that kind of one day when there's the dramatic shift after ovulation. And once you feel the shift, then you kind of will know you're like, it'll, uh, you know, the light goes off. It's like, oh, that's it. That's what she was talking about. That's what that girl was talking about <laughs> on the Healthy Gut Podcast, that one day where it's different. And then that's from there on in, you'll always have that sense of this is how it feels as I approach ovulation. And this is how I feel. This is how it feels after ovulation. And I do encourage you to do that full cycle and don't feel you know, concerned if you've got, if you feel lost in the wilderness and you don't know what you're feeling for, because I felt like that when I first started. And it was really only when the shift happened that I was like, Lisa, <laughs> I felt it. I now know what you're talking about. And it blew me away. Um, a question I get asked a lot by ladies is, is it safe to have a baby when I've got SIBO? How can we tell if a woman's body is even ready for pregnancy when she's dealing with a condition like SIBO? That's a good question, hey? I've got loads more just like this coming up after this break. We'll be back in a moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
is it safe to have a baby when I've got SIBO? How can we tell if a woman's body is even ready for pregnancy when she's dealing with a condition like SIBO? Well, that's a, it's a really good question. And I think if we can appreciate and understand our bodies in a different way, first and foremost, it can be a little bit easier. I think as women, um, if we're not getting pregnant exactly exactly kind of the first time we try, we immediately tend to think that our bodies are broken. And a big part of that is the messaging that we've grown up with. So, you know, Rebecca, you and I both grew up with that idea that um, you, you could get pregnant on any day of your cycle. It's almost like, it's almost like terrorism. Like I was terrified. I was terrified of uh, getting pregnant. And based on how I was taught about my body or rather not taught, I really remember as a young woman in my late teens, really feeling like if I ever had sex with another person, I would be pregnant that day. Like that afternoon, (laughs) I would already be pregnant and it was a sure thing. And so that sets us up, uh, first of all, to be really scared of our bodies. It sets us up to, for a lifetime of hormonal birth control because we're trying to prevent pregnancy 24 hours a day, seven days a week, even though there's only a small window of fertility. So during the menstrual cycle, there's about a week or so when we can get pregnant. And also it sets us up so that we don't really think about how our fertility changes as we get older. And then when we come off the pill or when we stop taking hormonal birth control, we assume that we're going to get pregnant immediately. So I think first and foremost, we, um, I think it's really common as women to, to feel that if pregnancy doesn't happen immediately, it means that there's something wrong with us. It means that we're broken. Um, I would suggest for us to kind of look at our body and our fertility in a different way. If you think of your menstrual cycle as a vital sign and your fertility is a sign of health, then if you're trying to get pregnant and it's not happening, it's usually a sign of an underlying issue. But what's interesting about that is that when you do get pregnant, and you're able to carry the baby to term, that's a sign that your body's ready. So it can be a bit freeing to think about it in terms of like when it comes to SIBO, you know, when your body, your, your, your body won't actually get pregnant. <laughs> you won't actually get pregnant unless your body is able to and in a position to. Does that make sense? Mm, it does. Um, so that's the first thing I would say. And then to kind of pull it back, uh, because for me, um, as a fertility awareness educator, one of the things that you can do, especially if you start charting your cycles, is to understand what a healthy menstrual cycle looks like. Because in a, you know, in an ideal situation, you would want to wait until you've had three, you know, perfectly normal healthy cycles in a row. And that's a good sign that your body is ready to get pregnant. And so just to kind of briefly take you through what that looks like, we're often told that the menstrual cycle is always 28 days and ovulation always happens on day 14, but that's not the case. (laughs) And I love that you have been charting your cycles now for over a year and you have discovered that for yourself. You know, in your case, ovulation, there's a range. You found that it fluctuates from from between day 10 to day 16, which also indicates that it doesn't always happen on the same day, Uh, (laughs) but that falls within the normal range. So a normal healthy cycle falls somewhere between 24 and 35 days, and that's from the first day of your period until the last day before your next one. And within that period of time, there's uh, multiple other parameters we would look at. So, you know, in terms of your period, we would expect it to be between about three to seven days, uh, you know, having a beginning, a middle and an end. So if you have several days of spotting before your period or several days after, that's something that we'd want to look at. 
And then after your period finishes, we would expect to have a couple of days before you go into your cervical mucus uh, observations, as we talked about the creamy white hand lotion or the clear stretchy raw egg white type fluid. And we would expect to have about two to seven days. So uh, again, with cervical mucus, we wouldn't expect to have it every single day. We wouldn't expect to have it for two weeks in a row. Um, we would expect to have it for about two to seven days as you approach ovulation. And then of course, in a healthy cycle, we would expect you to ovulate. And within a, a 24 to 35 day cycle, that puts ovulation at a range. So ovulation happening anywhere from day 10 to day 23. And then after you ovulate, we would expect your period to come about 12 to 14 days later, and we would expect your cervical mucus to dry up. So for the, the most part, after ovulation, we would expect you not to really see a whole lot of mucus. So I just listed for you several different parameters that we would look at in the menstrual cycle to see if it's normal and healthy. And I share the parameters because there's no such thing as a perfect cycle. You know, we're not trying to make it so that your cycle is always a certain number of days. We want to have an understanding that there is a healthy range, but overall we would want to take a look at the whole menstrual cycle and say, okay, this does fall within the normal range. And for a woman with SIBO, there's a number of different, uh, depending on how, how, you know, how bad the condition is on the spectrum, depending on how long she's had it, you know, depending on what's happening in her life and all the different things, there's a number of different things that she might see on her cycle that uh, would be an indication that maybe she still has a bit more work to do. So one of the things that I've noticed for women with SIBO and other gut conditions, gut infections, IBS symptoms, etc., is that um, for women who have specific sensitivities to specific types of foods, um, you know, often I've seen on the chart where some women will have several days of mucus or they'll just have like a week, two weeks, three weeks of peak mucus. Um, depending on what's happening, I've seen ovulation be delayed quite a bit. Uh, but it's interesting because my observations are that when you have gut issues, it can really affect the cervical mucus production and it can also contribute to abnormal bleeding or spotting throughout the cycle. Uh, so again, I mean, in order to really get to the bottom of it, you'd and especially to help you interpret those charts, it's helpful to work with someone with experience reading charts and helping you to make those connections. But just having a general sense of, you know, does my cycle fall within normal parameters? Um, and from that perspective, waiting until you have, you know, three cycles in a row where they're pretty run of the mill, pretty normal and healthy, that's one, one way to gauge uh, when your body's ready for pregnancy. One of the best investments I've ever uh, spent was actually signing up to do your program because it um, fast-tracked my understanding of charting. But really importantly, there were other women going through it and we were all different ages. I was the oldest woman going through it. So I was at the tail, you know, coming to the latter stages, the twilight years of fertility. Um, but we could see each other's charts when we were going through them so I for the first time ever in my life I was getting to really see what other women's charts were like and I was like oh that's so interesting um, because when you start charting you're just looking at your own chart so you've got no comparison but it's really informative to see what other women go through and to be able to ask the questions that we would ask you in our 
weekly catch-ups around, you know, what does this mean? Is this normal? Am I looking for it right? You know, let me, how, I, I haven't seen cervical mucus this week. What's wrong with me? <laughs> well, you're not in your fertile window. That's why you haven't seen it. So, um, you know, it's really, really useful. Um, what, so we've talked about obviously how there are some signs that you can get a sense of whether your body is ready for pregnancy. Do you feel, Lisa, that we should be treating, addressing, recovering from SIBO before or other gut issues before we try to conceive? Or do you think we can still conceive and have a healthy baby when we've got these very inflammatory um, overgrowths in our body? Well, I mean, I think that the ultimate answer to that question is that it depends on the woman and it depends on how um, pronounced the condition is. Because for some women, they may not be able to conceive until they've treated the SIBO. For some women, it's after they treat the SIBO and, you know, get rid of the gut infection that their body will allow them to get pregnant. Um, and for other women, they may um, experience some symptom relief in the different protocols that they're trying and conceive kind of midway. I mean, in a perfect world, which we don't live in, but in a perfect world, ideally, uh, you would have the opportunity to treat uh, SIBO. And as you know, you know, SIBO isn't really straightforward to treat. I've had a number of clients with SIBO uh, going undergoing multiple rounds of antibiotics, whether it is herbal antibiotics or, you know, regular run-of-the-mill antibiotics. Um, so, you know, it, it, that's one of the challenges for women who are right there, ready to, to, or in the midst of trying to get pregnant, and they discover that they have SIBO because um, treating it isn't always something that happens overnight. Definitely not. It doesn't necessarily happen quickly, and it often takes multiple rounds of treatment for it to, you know, for, for it to stick. Um, so, I mean, ideally, ideally, it would be it would be better to treat it first. And when you're tracking the cycle, so for me, the, the menstrual cycle is always central to everything that I do. The menstrual cycle, um, and that's why I call it a vital sign, you know, because you're going to get that information on your menstrual cycle. Uh, when I'm working with women who have SIBO, depending on how, um, I keep just trying to, like, depending on where they are, like, depending on how serious the condition is, um, some of my clients with SIBO, they did have abnormal mucus patterns, and it was related to, I mean, they were on a process of identifying their symptoms, trying to determine if they had any food sensitivities, trying to treat the SIBO, and as they would make progress, whether it was identifying and removing certain foods that they were sensitive to, um, doing treatment and addressing it, you would see the way that the cycle would shift. So the one great thing about the cycle, and that's why I always take it back there, is that you'll get this information um, as to uh, where you're at and if what you're doing is helping, you know, if you see improvements. The other challenge with SIBO is that um, when you have a gut infection, it can reduce the amount of nutrients and things that you're getting from your food <laughs> because the bacteria is taking it instead of you getting it. And uh, one of the things that's really important to consider when you're preparing for pregnancy, you know, especially if you've had a history of hormonal birth control, uh, hormonal birth control, one of the known side effects is depleting a variety of nutrients, including, you know, B vitamins, uh, selenium, magnesium, coenzyme Q10, um, you know, the list really goes on and on. Uh, but, um, and I'll mention as, as well, folate, 
uh, in particular, which we all know is very important for neural tube development. Uh, so for a woman who's coming off of hormonal birth control and is struggling with SIBO, for example, it might be something to consider addressing the SIBO um, and also working with a practitioner to just, you know, just test your levels of a variety of different nutrients and allow yourself enough time to replenish your body's supply of those nutrients to do your best to improve or heal the condition or at least control it a little bit. I think you know where I'm going with this, Rebecca, just so that you can um, address any nutrient deficiencies that you might have and really bring your body in the best possible place as you prepare for pregnancy. Talking about nutrition, are there um, any things we should definitely be eating or we should definitely be avoiding when it comes to helping prepare the body for pregnancy? Well, I come from a more ancestral approach. Um, I've always kind of wondered, what did our ancestors do? <laughs> how did they get these new? How did they get nutrients before we had whole foods and before we could go to the store and buy all kinds of vitamins and minerals? And so, you know, one of the things that I encourage my clients to do is to focus on specific foods that contain the nutrients that we need for um, for fertility, for healthy menstrual cycles, for preconception, nutrition, pregnancy nutrition, etc., in large quantities. And so, I mean, um, if you think about what what do we need to build a healthy baby, um, there's a number of key nutrients that are essential for healthy pregnancy as well as fertility as well as healthy menstrual cycles. I mentioned folate, um, choline; those two nutrients are essential for neural tube development. Um, vitamin B12 iron, vitamin A, um, we need omega-3 fatty acids for brain, fetal brain development, um, the list really goes on. And so a few specific foods that you can focus on if you're open to it, liver and organ meats, I talk about that a lot. Um, and it's because if you look at the nutrient breakdown, nutrient profile of liver, you find that it's actually, it's like a multivitamin. I, you know, I think a lot of different practitioners refer to liver as nature's multivitamin uh, because na uh, liver naturally contains a significant amount of vitamin A, vitamin B12, iron, folate, choline, and the list really does go on. And not only does it contain a significant amount of it, so you don't have to eat very much liver to, to, to you know, to gain the benefits of it. Uh, but it also contains these nutrients in their most absorbable form. And it contains a number of, you know, enzymes and cofactors that just make it so that our body can really um, assimilate them. And what's interesting is that, you know, uh, there was a study that I was looking at uh, in terms of the iron requirements in pregnancy. And so as a woman who's thinking of pregnancy or planning to get pregnant within the next little while, it's not just what you eat, it's also what you have in store. So there was a different number of requirement for the amount of iron that a woman needed to have stored up, as well as her daily requirement in order to have sufficient iron for pregnancy. And in that particular study, the researchers found that only 20% of women went into pregnancy with sufficient iron stores. And you know, that's just one nutrient. So um, so liver and organ meats, definitely something to consider. And then if, if it's, you know, out of the question, I suppose, or if, you know, I know it's not everyone's favorite food, um, just thinking about other ways that you can get those nutrients. I know some of uh, my clients will opt for desiccated liver supplements so that they don't have to eat it. But just thinking about ways that you can get that nutrition. Um, and then fish and fish oil or fish liver oil, like cod liver oil, um, when you're 
planning to get pregnant in that preconception phase or when you're actually pregnant already, know that omega-3 fatty acids, the kind that you get from fish and seafood, are essential for optimal um, brain development. And even for mom, uh, one of the one thing to consider when you're thinking about pregnancy in the future, we always focus on what baby needs and that makes perfect sense because we want to have healthy babies. But as a mom myself, so I have two little ones, age six and three, you know, after you have the baby, you need to be a mom. And if you went into pregnancy in a really deficient state, you're never going to come out on the other side better nourished, if that makes sense. You know, uh, pregnancy and breastfeeding are times of, uh, I use the bank account analogy. So if your body was a bank account, the only thing that happens during pregnancy and breastfeeding are withdrawals. <laughs> and uh, so if you come out on the other side depleted, you know, you didn't have sufficient iron, you didn't have sufficient vitamin B12, you didn't have sufficient iodine, you didn't have sufficient zinc, etc, 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 then um, you are setting yourself up to more likely experience issues with postpartum depression, postpartum thyroid issues, um, and just really not necessarily being able to be there for your baby. So in addition to it being important for fetal development, it's also important for mom to consider how she's going to prepare for pregnancy and to take some time to really incorporate some nutrient-dense foods. Uh, so, I mean, in addition to liver and organ meats and, and fish oil or cod liver oil or fish in general, um, you know, thinking about eggs. Eggs are an excellent source of choline and folate. Um other seafood in addition to fish, so shellfish, if you can tolerate that, are a great source of zinc. And then incorporating, you know, lacto-fermented foods, if you can tolerate it. I think with SIBO, you really have to pay attention to what your body can tolerate. So not everybody, depending on where they are in their treatment protocol, can tolerate fermented foods. But it's something just to, you know, consider as you make your way through your healing journey. And it's something that many of us can come to um, as we progress and, and reduce the seabell and, and heal our gut. In your book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Master Your Cycles and Optimize Your Fertility, you also touch on lifestyle parameters and lifestyle support. What can we be doing to have healthy lifestyle choices to support um, our bodies getting ready for pregnancy? Mm-hmm. Well, the, the, the great thing about it is that there's a lot of different things that we can do. Some of them seem in many ways too simple to really make that big of a difference. And the first thing that I mention in the lifestyle choices for healthy menstrual cycles chapter is sleep. And both how much sleep you're getting, but also the quality of sleep that you're getting. And, you know, from a hormonal standpoint, when we're looking to optimize the menstrual cycle, one of the ways that we can do that is by sleeping in the dark and minimizing our light exposure in the evening time. And what's helpful to know is that basically, if you think about our circadian rhythms, we're supposed to be awake and alert during the day. We're supposed to be sleepy and tired and sleeping at night. And um, so what that means from a hormonal standpoint is during the day, we're producing cortisol and cortisol is what makes us feel awake and alert. And at nighttime, we're producing significant amounts of melatonin and that's what makes us feel sleepy and tired. And so, you know, the research and also just our general experience tells us that if you are, if you expose yourself to light, so if you're working on your laptop, 
late at night, if you're watching TV late at night, or otherwise just exposing your, yourself to blue light, so basically like the bright kind of LED lights on all of our devices, then it profoundly suppresses our melatonin production and also delays the onset of it. When you're kind of chilling out at home, and let's say it's not that, you know, you're not surrounding yourself with light, you typically start to feel tired at some point. You kind of feel like the tired creeping up on you, and that is literally your melatonin levels rising. And when you're exposing yourself to light, you're quite literally suppressing it, which is why sometimes you might catch yourself at 1230 and be like, oh, why am I not tired? And it's because you're staring at your laptop. Um, similarly, in your sleep environment, so in your bedroom, if you have you know, if you have like a, a window that faces into the street and you've got street lights pouring in, or if you've got a TV in your room that's always on, or if you've got, uh, you know, lights or whatever it is, your skin has photolight receptors and it can pick up on that. And when you're exposing your body to light throughout the night, you're reducing, significantly reducing your melatonin. So how this relates to your cycle is that all of those types of disruptions can interfere with your natural progesterone production and interfere just generally with your hormone production of the menstrual cycle. Uh, so over the years, you know, I've worked with a number of women who might have had some concerns about their menstrual cycle. Uh, perhaps the, you know, the second half of their cycle which is supposed to be 12 to 14 days you know for some women that is too short their cycles are only you know they're only having a 10 or 11 day luteal phase when it's supposed to be 12 to 14 days I've worked with women who have spotting before their period and they're concerned about that and just different um, I spoke with one of my clients actually mentioned that she she was having cervical mucus every single day uh, so there's lots of different challenges that when you're charting you might see and just by improving your sleep environment uh, it's incredible for for some women. It's not that simple for every single woman, but for a certain percentage of women, by just optimizing her sleep environment, making sure she's sleeping in the dark, and minimizing that light exposure in the evening time, she can create a profound shift in her menstrual cycle. Um, so that's something just a very basic and free thing that you can do. Um, you know, in addition to that, looking at your chemical exposure, it's a really big topic. And, you know, Rebecca, I remember in our group together, we talked about that a lot because it can be really overwhelming. The thought of looking at all of the products you use from cleaning products in your house to beauty products on your that you use on your body uh, to, you know, pollution in the air to is, you know, if your water is filtered to the the types of foods that you're buying at the store, you know, are you buying organic foods? Are you buying conventionally raised meats, etc.? It just goes on. Uh, but just by uh, these are ways to support and boost your natural hormones. If you can start, for example, in your house, the next time you run out of dishwashing soap to buy a non-scented option, the next time you run out of laundry detergent to buy a non-scented option, um, to think about the lotions and perfumes and, you know, all the different beauty products that you use on your skin and to start thinking about swapping it out for something that's not scented, something that when you look at the label and you see the ingredients, you actually know what they are and you can pronounce them and it doesn't contain fragrance or parabens or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, so there's lots more things you can do, but I feel like just starting with sleep and starting to become aware of all the different sources of chemical and xenochemical exposure can be extremely helpful just to start to balance uh, and boost your natural hormone production. All of those chemical exposures are something I've talked about quite, quite often on the podcast and it's something that I've spent the last couple of years just pulling out 
um, you know, a lot of those toxins and it's a work in progress. I talk, I've talked before about how, you know, don't go and throw everything you've got in the trash and start from scratch, you know, just do it as you need to replace things. It's a more economical way. Obviously you can get rid of everything if you want, but that's creating unnecessary waste Um, and just swap them out, swap them for more natural things. And it's less daunting when you do them one by one as they finish rather than thinking, oh my gosh, look at everything in my house that I've got to go and change over. Uh, my current thing is plastics, getting rid of all the plastics. Uh, plastic is just insidious. It just it's everywhere. So I'm trying to move everything into glass. Um, but that's a process in and of itself when you start really looking at where are the plastic exposures that I'm currently getting. And you go, oh my gosh, they're everywhere. They're everywhere, everywhere I look. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, you bring up such an important point because most women um, or men, but most women who do this, it's a, it's something that it's a process that occurs over several months, even a year or more. So I know for myself, I started with the person, like I started with beauty products. So I started with my lotions and all the things I used to use in my hair and all that. Uh, And so nowadays it's coconut oil, shea butter combination for the majority of my lotion needs. And I've really reduced the different types of chemicals that I've used for beauty products. And then um, household cleaning supplies was a big one. And some of, I found some of the transitions to be easier than others. It took me a while to find dishwashing soap that actually cleaned the dishes. It took me a while to find toilet bowl cleaner that actually worked. Uh, and then, you know, later on, you know, within like a year, etc. then I was started to focus on um, getting a water filter. For me, I wanted, I, I got a water filter that filters out fluoride and filters out all kinds of different chemicals in the water. Um, I switched my, uh, I made sure to get rid of my nonstick pans. And so now I have cast iron pans. And, um, you know, at, at some point you can start thinking about, you know, okay, the next time I need to buy a, a mattress to sleep on, maybe I'll look for a mattress that doesn't off gas a ton of perfluorinated chemicals. But it's really overwhelming. You know, you don't necessarily start at the mattress. You know what I mean? Like you, you don't necessarily start there and you, you, you really just have to start where you're at and then over time gradually reducing. And what I always say uh, to women about this whole concept of reducing your exposure to chemicals and to pesticides and looking at what's in your food is that there's no situation where you're ever going to be pure and clean. There's just no situation where you're ever going to get rid of all of your exposures because we still live in the world. Even if you were to replace everything in your house, you still at some point have to go outside and breathe air and there's cars out there. And so there's, you know, there's always going to be some type of exposure. So really what we're doing is we're looking to find ways to reduce our exposure. And at least when you're charting your cycles, you'll actually be able to see that a lot of my clients who, especially clients who had painful periods or different challenges with their menstrual cycle, find that they see noticeable differences when they start to reduce uh, their chemical exposures, get enough sleep, look at cleaning up the diet a little bit, all of those things, you can actually see the physical difference um, on your charts in your menstrual cycles. Lisa, your book, The Fifth Vital Sign, is available now. How can people uh, get a copy of it? And I really encourage you, if you're listening to this and you think that's so interesting, I don't know anything about my cycle. I'd love to know more. I think this is a fantastic starting point to, to learn more. 
Where can they go and grab a copy? Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Uh, so the book is available on Amazon in paperback and ebook format. I've been working on the audio version, so that'll be available soon. And, you know, if anyone is really interested in that concept of the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, you can actually go to thefifthvitalsignbook.com and get the first chapter for free. Awesome. And then you've got your amazing podcast. Uh, You've got over 200 episodes now. I'm assuming that they can just listen on all the major podcast platforms, but uh, the Fertility Friday podcast, where can people go and find that? Yes, whatever your favorite podcast player, if you just type in Fertility Friday, you'll, I'll be the first one that pops up. And as we're recording this, I'm getting ready to release episode number 250 next week, which is crazy. Um, I've been podcasting for almost five years. Uh, in November of this year, it'll be five years. So, um, so yeah, it's been quite the journey. Wow. Well, congratulations, because as a fellow podcaster, I know how much work goes into producing that. And then are you still offering your online programs? Because I know that was so fantastic for me. Is that still an option for people? Yes, absolutely. I offer them two to three times a year. And so that's my live 10-week program that Rebecca had joined. And it was, our group was so much fun. Um, and uh, so for more information about that, you can head over to fertilityfriday.com slash FAM, F-A-M. And what you'll see when you go there is either the next offering or you can jump on the waiting list to be notified uh, when it's offered again. But I do offer them periodically throughout the year. And it's a lot of fun. If you want to learn uh, like I did, more about your um, fertility awareness, your cycles, what to look for, uh, the difference between cervical mucus and when it's not cervical mucus. I can't recommend the program highly enough. It was the best investment that I have spent on my fertility awareness uh, ever. And I am now so much more equipped with knowledge on what to look for, what my cycle is like. Um, and I'm you know, really proud to know that knowledge. Just sad it took me in, until my late 30s to even be aware of it but I'm glad I know it now and I'll, I'll be def- I definitely advocate for young women to be learning about this I, I don't st- stop talking about it <laughs> Lisa Hendricks and Jack it's been a Wonderful to have you come back on to the Healthy Gut Podcast. Congratulations on the publishing your book. It is a huge achievement to get a book out there. Many of us talk about doing it. Only some of us do it. So welcome to the club of authors. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Great to be to have you with us. And, uh, and thanks for, so much for coming on to the Healthy Gut Podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to listen to today's episode, episode 88, with Lisa Hendrickson-Jackwell around fertility and SIBO and your fifth vital sign. Now, don't forget, you can get the transcription from today's show. So just head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast to sign up as a member and you will get not only today's episode transcribed but also all of them from season three and please guys leave a rating and review just to let me know what you think of season three and it will also really help other people looking for podcasts to listen to all around SIBO. I look forward to speaking with you next week in our next episode.
You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast. We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.